you would, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 12. As we continue on in our studies in the, the book of Leviticus, we are in uh, Leviticus chapter 12 tonight. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing or enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Now, the chapter before us tonight is short, but challenging nonetheless. We're told here of the uncleanness attached to women giving birth to children and of the purification requirements connected to the same. Now, on the one hand, the chapter seems fairly straightforward, but on the other hand, ascertaining the reasons underlying the laws of this chapter is a matter that is not so straightforward. So let's first of all just just kind of cover the facts, what's here in the text, and we can do this in fairly short order. When a woman gives birth to a male child, she would be then ceremonially unclean for a period of seven days. Verse 2 says, as in the days of her menstruation. Then on the eighth day, the baby boy would be circumcised. In the case of a daughter being born, she was ceremonially unclean for twice as long, 14 days, verse 5. But in either case, after the birth of a child, there was a longer period of purification that must have been completed before the woman was allowed to touch any consecrated thing or to enter the sanctuary. This would have meant, for instance, that the woman would not be allowed to eat of a sacrifice of peace offerings. We've seen earlier in the book how the peace offerings would be, would be eaten, some portions by the priest and the priest's family, some portions by the family that had uh, brought the sacrifice, and then some would be burnt uh, to the Lord. A woman in the days of her purification, because of the stipulation there in verse 4, that she should not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary, uh, she would not have been allowed to eat of the peace offerings, or if she, was, uh, if she were the wife of a priest, she would not be allowed to eat of the sacrifices that belonged to the priest's family. And this period lasted for 40 days after the birth of a son. Uh, uh, the first seven, she was ceremonially unclean. And then after that period of seven days and 33 more days, brought the total to 40. And then in the case of the birth of a daughter, that period of purification was 80 days. 
14 days she was ceremonially unclean, 66 more for the days of her purification. And then at the end of those 40 or 80 days, depending on the circumstance, the woman was to bring to the priest two offerings, a burnt offering, a sin offering. Under the first and usual circumstances, there was to be a lamb for the burnt offering and either a pigeon or turtle dove for the sin offering. And in the Lord's grace, there were provisions made for the poor. Where the woman was poor and could not afford a lamb, she could take either two turtle doves, two pigeons, one for a sin offering, the other for uh, the burnt offering. And the purpose of the sacrifice is seen there in verse 7. Then he shall, that is he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. Or again, at the end of verse 8, the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Now this is the, the basic instruction contained in the chapter. But you have questions. I know you do. Right? Why is the woman considered unclean after the birth of a child? Why the additional period of purification after that uncleanness? Why the longer periods of uncleanness, longer period of purification following the birth of a daughter? Why the requirement for an offering, or to put a finer point on it, why the requirement for a sin offering after the period of purification? These are questions. Let's try to sort through them the best that we can. The uncleanness of the woman following childbirth seems, at the very least, uh, related to the blood that accompanied the birth of the child. You notice the language there in verse 2 and verse 5, how uh, the, the uncleanness that attaches to the woman after childbirth is similar to that as in the days of her menstruation. And Lord willing, when we get to, to chapter 15, we'll get to talk more uh, about that. Um, and I say, at the very least, it's connected to the blood uh, that accompanied the birth of the child because historically, many have connected the uncleanness the need for purification, the subsequent requirements for a sacrifice to the fact of original sin, in that in the conception of a child and the birth of a child, original sin is passed down from the parents to a new member of the human race. Calvin was blazingly clear on this point. He said, there is little difficulty in understanding why a woman who has conceived and given birth to a child should be pronounced unclean. Because the whole race of Adam is polluted and defiled, so that the woman already contracts uncleanness from the offspring which she bears in the womb, and is further contaminated by giving it birth. Hence it appears how foul and disgusting in God's sight is our condition, since at our birth and even before it, we infect our mothers. It's pretty strong. Matthew Henry was more restrained, but spoke along similar lines. And said, this ceremonial uncleanness which the law laid women in childbed under was to signify the pollution of sin in which we are all conceived and born in. Psalm 51.5 For if the root be impure, so is the branch. But now that the nature of man is degenerated, the propagation of that nature is laid under the marks of this disgrace because of the sins and corruption that are propagated with it and in remembrance of the curse upon the woman that was first in transgression. Now, obviously the text here in Leviticus 12 is not explicit on the the matter of original sin, and so there's there's some measure of conjecture here, but Lord willing, we'll speak more uh, of this matter when we we come to the 
the issue of the sacrifices down, uh, down toward the latter end of the chapter. So Lord willing, we'll speak more about uh, the possible connection to the, the issue of original sin here. Now, as to another question, the days of purification, which followed uh, the time of that seven-day or 14-day ceremonial uncleanness, this is uh, the time in which there would be further discharges of blood. Now, let me be clear up front. I don't claim expertise in the field of OBGYN by any means. But nevertheless, these are the discharges that are today known as lochia. And uh, the medical authorities, uh, at least according to what I can tell, say that this uh, can last up to six weeks. Hence, we have that round number, 40 days. It's a fairly standard and common biblical number, 40 days. We have this round number given to us, 40 days following the birth of a boy for a woman being in the blood of purification or blood for purification. Now, how about the girls, right? The longer period of uncleanness, the longer period of purification. Well, there's no explicit reason given in the text as to why a woman would be unclean for twice as long or why the purification period would be twice as long. There are a number of theories out there on that front, And I will try to refrain from making a definite pronouncement, but uh, it might be worth noting that, at least in the ancient world, it was actually believed that the bleeding lasted longer when a girl was born as opposed to when a boy was born. And so, for example, Hippocrates, the ancient Greek physician who's named the, the Hippocratic Oath that doctors still take today, Hippocrates wrote about this and said that women are sooner purged after the birth of males than after the birth of females. And at least uh, one of the old Jewish rabbis taught that there was a greater redundancy of blood following the birth of a girl. It's also said that uh, among the the Greeks and various African groups, including the Egyptians, that there was observed a longer period of uncleanness after the birth of a girl. So this is not not a uh, a unique Hebrew take here. And as I was so I was working through the text uh, this week and preparing the sermon. I, I came across this, this interesting article, and uh, unfortunately I didn't have the right subscription to, uh, to the right journal to be able to read the entire article, but it was written by a, a man who was an Orthodox Jew who uh, lived, uh, I think he was like born in Moscow, but then came and taught up at Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore. And uh, so in 1933, he wrote this article called A Scientific Appreciation of Leviticus 12, 1 through 5. And I was only able to access the first page of the article. But anyways, uh, so all of that to say, there, there, there are potential reasonable reasons why the, the period of uncleanness here stated for the birth of a girl could be longer than the birth of a boy. You know, we read this and, and we're tempted to think, what in the world were they thinking? Is this misogynistic or, or what is this? No, we need, to, we need to be careful. We need to, to step back and be more thoughtful and certainly more reverent than that. This is Holy Scripture. This is God's law, not man's law. Now, what about the sacrifice? Verses 6 through 8, we see that when this period of purification, 40 days, 80 days, was completed, the woman was to bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a lamb for the burnt offering and then either a young pigeon or turtle dove for the sin offering. And of course, in the case of the poverty, uh, an extra bird could substitute for the lamb. Now, why the sacrifice? And especially, why the sin offering? 
Once again here, the text is, is not explicit. Various reasons have been suggested. To my mind, anyways, the most plausible are those that point not so much to any particular sin of the woman in conceiving and giving birth to the child, but as some writers have said, to sin which had been indirectly manifested in her bodily condition. And I think, I think that phrase there, sin that had been indirectly manifested in her bodily condition, might be a helpful thing for us to keep in mind as we, as we continue forward here in some of these next chapters, like Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14, Leviticus 15. This idea of sin being indirectly manifested in a person's bodily condition. And on that account, I think it is noteworthy to compare the difference between what is said in verse 8, namely that the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean, to take that and compare it with what was said earlier in Leviticus in the context of sin offerings and guilt offerings. And so, uh, for instance, in Leviticus 4.20, 4.26, 4.31, 4.35, and 5.10, you see a phrase, something to this effect, the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. There's no, there's no mention here of the woman being forgiven in the case of bringing this, this sin offering, whereas earlier in the context of, of particular sin offerings and, and guilt offerings, you see this phrase, they will be forgiven. And so it's, it's helpful to, to note, I think, the, the distinction. And uh, John Gill uh, spoke of the law here in this way. He said, this law is general and reached every new mother and has respect not so much to any particular sin of hers as of her first parent, Eve, who was first in transgression and on account of which transgression pains are endured by every childbearing woman and who also conceives in sin and is the instrument of propagating the corruption of nature to her offspring and therefore was to bring a sin offering typical of the sin offering Christ is made to take away that and all other sin whereby she shall be saved, even in childbearing, and that by the birth of a child, the child Jesus. She continues in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety, uh, pointing ahead there to 1 Timothy 2.15. And I think it is both interesting and beautiful, the links between Leviticus 12 and Genesis chapter 3 on the one hand, and also the links between Leviticus 12 and our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2, on the other hand. So if you look back from Leviticus 12 to Genesis 3, we remember the sin of the woman, Eve, and we remember the curse which God placed upon Eve and upon women following her. Genesis 3:16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you will bring forth children. Now we don't know entirely what childbearing would have been like in a world without sin. We We don't know. We have no idea. But we know at least this much. We know that it would not be anything like it is now because of the curse. Here in Leviticus, we're reminded of the blood of childbirth. And in being reminded of blood, we're reminded of pain. And in being reminded of pain, we're reminded of the reason for pain, namely the sin of the woman, the curse of Genesis 3. And it is, I think, also noteworthy to consider that even the language here about the woman conceiving in verse 2. Now, our modern English translations mask this, but this is not the ordinary language that the Old Testament uses to speak of a woman's conception. This Hebrew word is used only very rarely 
with respect to a woman's conception. It is the, the verbal form for the word seed, and therefore the King James translated it as conceived seed, or as the, the footnote in the, the text of the New American Standard trans, uh, translates it, uh, produces seed. And this should direct our minds, I think, to another possible link to Genesis chapter 3, namely concerning the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And just as this chapter has a link, or possibly links, back to Genesis 3, it also has links to our Redeemer himself and to the mother who bore him. And so this is what we read in Luke 2.21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus was circumcised there in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant and in accordance with the law here of Leviticus 12.3. Our Lord Jesus fulfilled the law for us, the, the law of circumcision, and in so doing, he points us toward the circumcision which we all need, namely the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision that is done without hands, the, the cleansing of the heart, of which baptism is an emblem. Baptism is an emblem of this circumcision of the heart. It's the outward sign that the heart has been circumcised, and we, we saw that emblem this morning in baptism. Luke continues, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, and he said, And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there, there at the end there, he's quoting from... Leviticus 12, 8. Now in, in that uh, of Luke chapter 2, we see Mary's obedience to the Lord, and we see our Lord Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, presented to the Father as holy to the Lord. And in light of how Luke chapter 2 points us back to Leviticus 12, we're reminded somewhat of what the incarnation actually involves. The birth of a baby boy accompanied by the blood, by the pain of his mother in childbirth. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, stooped to that for us. We're reminded, incidentally here, of the poverty of his family, the poverty into which he was born. Mary had to take advantage of this allowance for poverty in verse 8. She didn't present a lamb for her burnt offering. She brought a pair of birds Instead, and it's no wonder that Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The Lord of glory stooped so low as that for us, and even stooped lower, by dying on the cross as a true sin offering, which the bird prescribed here in verse 8 was a type. And so first and foremost, we should... Allow this chapter, as strange as it may seem, to point us to Christ, the seed of the woman who was born to be a true sin offering to take away the curse of which the pain in childbearing is a part. And secondly, though, we should see in this rite of cleansing also something of the prescribed piety for the mother. 
She herself was to go up to the tent of meeting, to offer these sacrifices, and in this way to be, as it were, readmitted to the worship of God so that the stipulations of verse 4 that excluded her from the sanctuary, excluded her from touching the consecrated things, would no longer be applicable to her. The burnt offering seems uh, perhaps to be a, a dedication of herself to the Lord or perhaps a, a return of thanksgiving for the birth of the child or perhaps a thanksgiving to the Lord for the fact that she herself was preserved through the difficulty and danger of giving birth. And if she was dedicating herself afresh in some way to the Lord or returning a thank offering to him and offering this burnt offering, then such a woman, unless she were just going through the motions, would surely then no doubt be seeking the well-being, the spiritual well-being of the child that she had just given birth to as well. And certainly this ceremonial law is now abolished in Christ, no longer binding on us. But nevertheless, it should still serve as a special reminder, especially to those of us who are parents, of the necessity of giving thanks to the Lord for our children and of our own need to dedicate ourselves to the service of the Lord as parents, the need to bring up our own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And though this is foreign to to us and to our church tradition historically, Uh, Some branches of Christ's church have preserved something of Leviticus 12 for women after they had given birth. This was historically called the churching of women or the thanksgiving of women after childbirth. And so just to to give an example, the the Lutheran church order of Braunschweig-Wolfenbüttel of 1569 stated this. It said, when a new mother goes to church after her six weeks have been observed... She shall not, as in the papacy, be introduced or consecrated as if marriage were an impure estate or the birthing of children, an abomination before God, through which a poor woman was cut off from the church of God. Rather, it shall only be a reminder of the great benefits which our dear God has shown both mother and child and an exhortation to thanksgiving. And the pastor was supposed to read certain portions from the Psalms and was to exhort the, the mother to give thanks to the Lord and pray for her that her child might be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and that the child would increase and be strengthened in true faith and be graciously defended and preserved from every harm and evil of body and soul. And uh, the Hungarian Reformed Church in their Confession of Faith in 1562 stated this, We observe Moses' right of purification, which is as far removed from the papists' churching as truth is from falsehood. Not in special significance or a ceremonial law, but in general, insofar as it is a natural and moral law pertaining to three things. First, the purification and removal of menstrual pollution. Then, for restoration to injured nature. Third, for giving thanks for blessings. For the gift of a child and preservation in childbirth and health, we retain these in accordance with the law of God and nature. And uh, and so the point is is that there have been there have been churches in which they've they've seen some religious significance here of Leviticus 12 and have retained it not as not as a ceremonial law that, that women have to go through, but but rather an opportunity for for women to return to the church and to give thanks. Thanks for the birth of a child and to pray for children that they would be brought up in the ways of the Lord. 
So there's no law that, that binds us with respect to these things in the new covenant, certainly. But nevertheless, the occasion of the birth of a child is an occasion for thanksgiving. It is an occasion for renewing our own zeal in serving the Lord and in praying for the spiritual well-being of the child. And I realize not everyone here has children. Not everyone here is married. I understand that. But, but nevertheless, even as, uh, as our church covenant speaks, we, uh, we work together to bring up those entrusted to our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. First and foremost, this applies to parents, but secondly, this applies even to those who are not parents, to join with us who are and help us to bring up these children in the ways of the Lord. And so let's give thanks for, for children. They're a great gift from the Lord. And let's redouble our efforts to be zealous for the Lord ourselves, to be dedicated as this, this burnt offering would signify for the woman so that we may love these young ones, pray for them, and point them to Christ. Please join with me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it points us to Christ. We thank you that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And we're also thankful that we are not bound to, uh, to the strictness of the Old Testament ceremonial law. But Lord, we do ask that you would help us to learn from it, help us to, to learn your truth and to love your ways. And Father, we ask that you would help us, that we, that we would love the children entrusted to us, that we would be continually pointing them to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.